Hi and welcome back to season two of the Kilvington Podcast. I'm Maddie and today I will be your host. Our Global Connections is one of our flagships. As part of the program, students studying French and Japanese can participate in exchange programs. Here is Lavinia and Asha to talk about their experiences. I'm so thankful for this incredible opportunity and experience. I've discovered so much here about the amazing Australian culture, the kindness of the people and the beauty of the landscapes. It has been five amazing weeks, which allowed me to try new crazy things, such as climbing the Harbour Bridge in Sydney and admire the Opera House. But the thing I'll remember the most are all the incredible people I've met during these few days, and I could never forget them. I can't wait to host Livinia over Christmas in five months. It's going to be amazing. I would like to thank all the people who made this adventure possible. It has been an unforgettable trip. It's been so lovely to host Usha over the last five weeks and she's really become part of our family and it's going to be really sad without her. I don't quite know what we'll do, but I'm so excited to head over to France soon, have a white Christmas and it's just going to be so fantastic and I hope my language skills can hold up. (laughs) Recently, some of our students took on the challenge of participating in the Model UN where they had to talk about refugees all in French. On Monday the 23rd of July, I was lucky enough to attend the UN French model with seven other Year 11s and 12s from Kilvington. It was a great day, very well run and a fantastic chance to learn about the global refugee crisis. Students from several schools attended, each representing a country affected by the worldwide crisis. We were given the opportunity to present our country's suggested amendments and convince the other participants to vote for our changes. This event improved my French vocabulary and public speaking skills as the whole day was conducted in French. I would recommend attending this event if you have the chance. The Year 12 formal is one of the highlights of the Kilvington calendar. Elizabeth reflects on her time at the 2018 Party of the Year. The excitement began as the Year 11s and 12s lined up to collect their entry cards. Last-minute discussions of makeup appointments, accessories and dates filled the hallway as students rushed out to make it to various pampering sessions on time. Getting ready was half the fun, with so many things to consider. All the elements had to come together perfectly. For the girls, we obsessed over our dresses, shoes, faces, jewellery, nails. It seemed as if there was a never-ending list of things to do, and so little time to accomplish it in. By comparison, the boys were moving in slow motion. After everyone was dolled up and ready, we were confronted by a wave of cameras and adoring parents. Wanting to make the most of our efforts, we took many amazing shots before hurrying out the door to make it to the real event. The formal itself was a whirlwind of fun and laughter. We greeted teachers, took it in turns to compliment one another and whispered about who would win the coveted Best Dressed Couple Award. The food was delicious and we licked our plates clean despite fears of being too full to dance. But our worries were completely irrational, as no one seemed to have any qualms on the dance floor. Even the teachers joined in on the fun. Throughout the night, we could truly appreciate the relationships that we have built with one another and the sense of community that shone through in our wide smiles. It was an incredible opportunity to spend time with friends and teachers and to get to know people better. All in all, formal was a night to remember, and I'm sure that the many captured photos will reflect our happy little hearts on that night. 
On the 6th of August, we were delighted to welcome director of the ABC News, Gavin Morris, to Kilvington to participate in a discussion about fake news. With any big transition or any big you know, uh, advance in technology comes risks and comes pitfalls. So what started happening, of course, is that also meant that if you had access to everything, your ability to kind of know what was really quality sources of information and your ability to <coughs> tell the difference between that and necessarily something that you might get that looks like quality information but fundamentally isn't became a real risk in our news cycle. So along came, really, only in the past few years, this idea of fake news. Um, and fake news has many definitions in today's news context. Um, if you're a politician that doesn't like a story that's being reported about you, you call it fake news. Might be true, might not be fake at all, but it suits your narrative as a politician to call it fake um, and to denigrate the journalist or the media organisation that might be calling it out. If you look at a story and it doesn't agree with your opinion these days you call that fake news right you know this right wing or left wing person said something that i don't agree with then it must be fake or i'm going to call it out as being fake because it's not truthful to the way i believe things um, but what fake news is fundamentally at its heart is and where this really came from was the ability to sort of change democratic processes and to change the political context often by deliberately going out there and spreading a story that the people who wrote the story knew was going to be untrue because they thought it would change opinions or or so so this isn't this isn't a true story being called fake this isn't an opinion being told to you as being fake because it's not um, necessarily in accordance with yours so genu genuinely someone writing and disseminating a story to deceive an audience. Um, and quite often this is done in recent times for profit. So a company will come up with, a, you know, usually um, you know, a very shady company or person or organization behind the scenes that no one can really get to the truth of who it is. We'll do this because if you put a story out today that said the Australian Prime Minister has been assassinated, well, everyone would click on that, right? You would all go to that story and go, my God, this is amazing news. We've really got to kind of find out what's going on. Now, if it was fake, it wouldn't matter if you, all you were seeking to do was to generate internet traffic and to get people clicking on that story. And the more people click on that story and you've sold some Google ads or some Facebook ads around it, you're making money. So what ended up happening is uh, very shady people and organisations decided this was not only a great way of making money, but you could also skew the democratic process. You know, if you told, and you know, this really obviously came to the fore during the last US presidential election, where if you published enough stories that were untruthful about something that Hillary Clinton had said or believed or had done or something she'd done in her past, and none of these things happened to be true, this is great if you don't like Hillary Clinton because you can make money out of this and you can also change the outcome potentially of an election or an electoral, electoral process. So for us in the news world, this becomes a big deal because you know, at the ABC, we think the only thing we're fundamentally here for, in journalism at least, is to inform Australians with the truth, is to find factual stories to inform, educate and entertain all of the population of Australia who pay their taxes to support the ABC. That's our fundamental job.
Now, if we're suddenly in a media marketplace where a story that we might publish sits against a story that someone is publishing for their own commercial, political or mischievous reasons, um, how does the population tell the difference? How does the public know what's fake and what's not? Winning someone over to your point of view can be tricky. As part of a persuasive writing, some of our Year 12s tackled some important issues of the day. Here is an excerpt of Damien's oral presentation on genetically modified crops. The complete presentation is published in a special episode. Traditionally, Australia has been the envy of the world when it comes to supplying quality produce. Abundant fruits and vegetables and grains that ensure fresh food supply and a healthy export market. And it's never been truer than now how lucky we are, with no food shortages, famines, droughts or floods. But for how long can our luck last? Nature is temperamental, and you never know when your luck can and will run out. Although there is some debate about the development of genetically modified crops, Australia has the opportunity to recognise our vast, untapped potential to thrive, to ensure ourselves and to make ourselves immune to unforeseen disasters that could affect our food supply and our exporting capacity. Our generation is burdened with all the ruinous ideas of our future. We've heard countless times about climate change, disease, war and famine. How many of us envisage an arid, barren desert with infertile land? But GM foods are a solution to a part of these problems. If a hurricane tears through Queensland and bananas are in a short supply, why wouldn't we build a GM farm in a colder climate? Genetic modification can allow us to grow any seasonal or climate-dependent fruit in areas of Australia where they're not typically found. And this could be done for a variety of foods. We live in a land of extremes and unpredictability, with hurricanes, floods, droughts and heat waves. Why wouldn't we ensure that our farms can survive through it all? Just as we have to consider different forms of energy production, so too do we have to consider securing a reliable source of food production. With genetically modified crops growing throughout Australia, we can look forward to the future with some certainty, knowing that our future and the future of generations to come is safe. And when it comes to, pr to the produce, and when it comes to the produce to be harvested and enjoyed, somewhat superior. The Year 7s recently visited Melbourne Zoo as part of their investigation into animal habitats and classification. Okay, here we are at the lion enclosure and Rowan, could you Rowan tell us the average weight of a male lion? Well, the average weight of a male lion would be around 250 kilograms, but even though if it's the average, it would not be for every lion. Fantastic, very, very well scientifically said there. Um, now, Selena, can you tell me where do lions live? Um, lions come from Africa. Uh, um, does anyone know the scientific name of a lion? Um, that's a good impersonation of a lion, but do you know its scientific name? No, I don't. <laughs> okay, it's interesting. The first name is Panthera. And second name is Leo. So that's where they get Leo the lion. Oh, this is exciting. Okay, so the, the lion has decided to come and he, The lion has seen Millie and it's coming for Millie. Yeah, all right. Perfect. Well done. 
Okay, now looking at the lion, can you can anyone tell me some adaptations that the lion has? Adaptations. How do you think it survives in the wild? What does it do, Claire? Uh, eating other animals. So what sort of things has it got to eat things with? Um, its teeth and its claws. It's got teeth and it's got claws. Excellent. All right. Um, teeth and claws. Does it look like it has strong muscles? Uh, no. I'm, no, they're weak. Wow. What do you notice it doing there? It is... Flexing. Flexing. So how could it use that in the wild? Good, it's got a very flexible back. Excellent. And does it sneak up on them, do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. This is live action, guys. Um, would you think lions work together or do they work on their own? What do you think? So it's, that's like a behavioral adaptation. Notice how they crouch. Why do they crouch and crawl? Because um, they can't walk. <laughs> no. What? Yeah, secret, sneaky, sneaky. Yeah, it, it, you don't, there's no water, just whatever you can think of, yeah? Oh, the colours, excellent. Notice how they blend in with the grass, yeah? So, scientists use the term vulnerable when they discuss the population of lions. What does vulnerable mean? They are sort of like uh, threatened, sort of. Excellent, excellent. Okay. Does it mean they're nearly extinct? Uh, yes. It's, it's a few steps before extinction. There are about 16 to 30,000 lions left, okay, in the wild. I think humans affect the population of lions in Africa. They don't. What would be the main threat to a lion's life, do you think? Hunters. Hunters, good. What else do you think? So... Talk to me about what, how else people might ruin the lives of, of lions. What, 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 what? Yeah, 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 but if the population of people in Africa keeps on going up, what would happen to the lion's habitat, do you think? It gets, it gets used by agri for agriculture. Excellent. Agriculture, housing, so they're a carnivore. Yeah. Okay, so would anyone like to imagine an animal a lion would eat? A giraffe, maybe, yeah. They're probably a bit bigger. Zebra, yeah, yeah. Gazelle, nice. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of the other groups said bunny rabbit, but that's not right. Okay. Uh, have you heard of an impala? They're those sort of jumpy little gazelle type things. Uh, not many things. It's a top predator. Not many things eat a lion. A killer whale would, but they're not in the same habitat, yeah? The first Kilvington group at the Lions, and just to say farewell, they're going to give us a big roar, the best roar they can do. Very impressive. See you guys. Thank you for tuning in to the first episode of Season 2 of the Kilvington Podcast. We hope to see you again soon.